You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Boulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Dr. Benton is on vacation, but Father Paul still graciously agreed to join us for a session. Good morning, Father. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So today's topic is the word exist in Latin and in Greek. So I'd like to ask you, Father, to talk to us about the word exist and how it's used and how it functions. The basic problem, I think, is that people merge the meaning of exist and the meaning of to be is. It started with Plato's philosophy that one is, the soul is before even you are born. And thus people merge essence and existence. Let's remember that the verb essence is from the verb to be in Greek and Latin, the famous usia and so on. But again, it's the merger between the two. Now, let me begin with languages because they are more than essential, are basic, because that's how we speak. There is something in the Semitic languages called nominal sentences that are the rule. I repeat, they are the rule. This is how people speak. They do not say the dog is big. They say the dog big. That's all. Now, before my readers react and say, what kind of language is this? Well, Greek and Latin, old languages close to the Semitic languages, have also the same thing. But in those two languages, one can add the is, but its function is different. It is to emphasize something. Let me give you, for those who know Greek, basic examples. You say kalos or anthropos, good, the man. You don't need esteem at the end. You do not need it. And the same thing applies to Latin. And again, before my readers react, we have modern languages that are like the Russian and the Serbian and the Bulgarian that are Slavic languages they still have nominal sentences. Don't you hear yourself speaking like that? And people understand what you say when you say, you there. You don't say, are you there? It's enough to say, you there. It's understandable, which shows us that this to be is basically non-functional. Let's remember that in Semitic languages, we don't have conjugations the way we have in our languages. The conjugations are either you're doing something or you have done something. That's how it functions. So the verb to be in this sense, in the present tense, does not exist, so you don't need it to express your thoughts. Now, let me come from another angle to clarify this that you never say, are you, to someone. Notice, you may say, you there, because the original, are you there, allows you to eliminate are, but not there, because are by itself doesn't mean anything. Notice in the roll call, you don't say when you hear your name, I am, you say here. And these things are very important. They show that ultimately, you have to be there. Notice our English. 
there are students in the classroom. You don't say two students are in the classroom. And even when you say this, without the in the classroom, the sentence is not finished. You don't say I am, he is, and so on. No one speaks like that. So it's not only in Semitic languages, but also in Greek and Latin and Slavonic. So if one reads the Bible in those languages, one understands that this whole issue created by Anselm of Canterbury about the existence, the essence, is, is a fallacy. It doesn't make sense. It is the most irrelevant discussion ever. Now, let me jump to Arabic. There again, you know, the Arabs made this big mistake of translating the Greek philosophers in Arabic and they channeled it to Europe. It's the greatest curse. Because I remember in high school where I used to be frustrated, the existence cannot be translated in Arabic. So they used a word, I don't want to spend too much time on the rules of Arabic Semitic languages, but I would like my hearer to hear how it sounds silly in English. The wujud, which is existence, in Arabic means be foundedness. So you have something that is found. In other words, you have to be there to express this wujud. In Arabic, it becomes very silly. But then it entered the idiom and the lingo, the way Greek philosophy controls everything through Plato now. I mean, it's a lingo that doesn't mean anything. It's just for people who have an extra time to take some electives in the classrooms. So imagine someone is saying, be found, the be foundness. I mean, it's silly. But this is how you are forced to use something which is silly because you're trying to reflect a thought in another language. So the conclusion is that the verb to be is not necessary for a sentence. It is not a predicate. You always say the dog is big. You don't say the dog is. Instead of big, you can say there, an adverb or with his master, or whatever. But is, technically, is not existent. Now, let me jump to existence, and here I get closer to the text itself, since I said there is no to be. But in Greek and Latin, we have a verb that is existimi, or existo. It is made out of preposition ex, which is out, and then istimi, or sto in Latin, which means stand. Christos anesti, it stands up. This is what it means. It doesn't mean resurrected. Igerthi means was raised. But anesti means only to stand up. Now let's go back to existimi and existo. It means to stand out. But the standing out, I'm talking not about standing, but standing out. Existimi existu. You don't need even to be standing. Let me give the most compelling example. In the room where there is a king or a queen or a patriarch and so on, very often that person alone is sitting and everybody is standing out of the respect. But my question to you is which of all these stands out at that meeting? 
it is the king or the queen or the patriarch. So standing out does not necessarily mean to stand. And this is how God, and that is very close to my heart, because this is how God stands out in Scripture by being seated on his throne. Psalm 2 and Psalm 93 and Psalm 95 and Psalm 96. It's very impressive. This is how he stands out, which means that standing out, if you take the entire phrase, means simply to be egregious, special, in a special position, and not more than that. It has nothing to do with whether God exists or not, the way we argue and we discuss. Let me go back to the nominal sentence. Once you start speaking, let me go into Arabic grammar. It's really important. In the nominal sentence, the noun that is qualified by the predicate is parsed, analyzed grammatically as the archi in Greek, that with which you begin, you start. There is no basis behind it. You just say the dog. But the moment you said the dog, the dog is present in the mind of your hearer. So you cannot say the dog I just referred to is not. I mean, your hearer would be laughing at you, would call 911. Once you say the dog, it is there in the conversation. What applies to dog applies to me, applies to you, and applies to God because it's a noun. Let me remind my hearers the nice thing about Arabic and other Semitic languages is that we do not have uppercase letters. We do not have even vowels. They are diacritic marks. So I tease my students when I tell them it's good to be an Arab because then you feel that you and God are equal. <laughs> there is no uppercase, lowercase. Like the Orthodox, especially in America, love to write the names of their bishops in capital letters. What's the big deal? It's the word bishop that is important. It's the functionality. So going back to the nominal sentence, once you say God, that's it. What about him? That's all you can say. You cannot say, but I don't believe that God exists. My dear friend, why would you say even God does not exist? The moment you use the word God in your sentence to answer me, you are assuming, you're talking about God. And then I can ask you, if you like, philosophically, how can you even be talking about something that doesn't exist, according to you, obviously? So this whole topic, I mean, my intention is to show simply not the meaning of to be and exist, but the silliness of the discussion about these two elements, especially that in our lingo, they have become equal in meaning, which is a disaster. And that's the bottom line in Scripture. Let's go to Scripture because that's my reference. And one again has to hear it in the original as I keep repeating again and again that in the beginning. Now, John translates this in John 1.1 as en archi. Earlier, I told you that the noun in a nominal sentence in Semitic languages 
is parsed, analyzed grammatically as archi. You begin with it. It is your basic presupposition. The text says, in the beginning, God created. Very interestingly, it does not say that he was, he existed before the ages and so on. This is silly. This is theology, philosophy. Now, what about this Elohim and God? Then you have to continue reading the entire Bible to figure out what about this God. Interesting. And that I took my time to discuss in my book, The Rise of Scripture, that to understand not only Genesis 1-1, but actually that noun, Elohim, which is already, if you like, strange in that it is in the plural. You know, in the Bible, Elohim, the same word, very often you have to translate as gods because from the sentence you realize that you're talking about many. My hearers have to hear these things and not begin with their God in which they were baptized in Sunday school. That God is a fallacy. It is not to be found in Scripture. And there is only Elohim, and in this case, even to understand the word bara created, you have to keep going to understand, because in the Hebrew, the text is telling you my premise. That's what the author is saying. My premise is that Elohim did what he did. Now, if you ask the author who or what is Elohim, the author will answer you Alatarazi. Just keep reading. It's like the students in the classroom said, I want to analyze John 1.1, especially the Orthodox loved John 1.1. And then they say in the beginning, God, and then they move to two and light and so on. And suddenly in the paper, they are quoting the entire gospel of John. But my dear friend, you announced at the beginning of the paper or the exam that you wanted to speak about John 1.1, but you're already adding to John 1.1 words that are not there, or words that are found later in the Gospel of John. And you cannot do otherwise, because this is done in all the letters, like people who would like to analyze the word church in one specific verse of a certain chapter. By the fourth line, they are forced either to start speaking theologically about their assumption, or to quote other passages, which means the meaning of a noun or a word is found in all the texts where you read this word. But the difficulty or the trouble is that this same word can have a different function in different settings. Let me go back to that word, which is sacrosanct for the Christians, God. Notice how in this country, when they pronounce God, they give it a certain... Why? Just say God. You don't have to stress because you're assuming that you are saying something special when in the biblical text, it is not special at all. I mentioned the plural, but then that same person or personality or noun is referred to in other places as El, just in the singular. So what do we do with all that? 
we just keep listening to the text and try to figure out and by being controlled by other people who would ask us questions but not philosophical questions the question should not be but gregory the theologian said i don't care about him he's from the fourth century the old testament was written seven centuries before he was born but if you show me another sentence and you say but you said father paul it is so and look here it is so i am bound to try to answer you and if i don't know i will say i don't know for the time being and i do my research now let me conclude by saying to those whose mind has been crossed by the thought but you know father paul you spoke about premise in genesis 1:1 as a premise god that's not what genesis 1 is saying genesis 1 is not saying in the beginning god that's no sentence in the beginning created god i'm reading the hebrew where the verb comes before and let me push my luck by saying it is interesting that the authors that are very ingenious and erudite made it so i mean anyone hearing the text in the original will notice that the first three letters of in the beginning in hebrew and the three letters of the verb created in hebrew are the same letters that cannot be happenstance it's fantastic so the premise of the bible which obviously cannot be proven in science you cannot prove or disprove that the world we live in is a creation by someone you can't it is the assumption of the author and if you don't like it tough luck for you then stop reading the bible i have no problem with that but you have no right to say to another reader well since i stopped reading the bible you should also stop reading the bible because in the class of philosophy that i took at the university my professor proved to me that god does not exist which god are you talking about i'm telling you that even the scriptural god does not exist the way you assume he exists so i hope i covered as many bases as possible to make my point that to be is not to be found in semitic languages exist obviously is found also in greek and latin but then its meaning is not equal to to be and one more time we do not talk like this you do not say i am or i exist can you imagine that the first time i need to introduce you to someone who doesn't know you in my conversation i said before i start i want to make sure that when i going to refer to father mark bulos that he exists i mean it's silly suppose in the meantime you have died mark so how do we go from there the being is always being somewhere remember the famous you there or there are 54 students in the classroom that's how we speak and one more time to wrap up exist has a totally different understanding that it's not just you are but you are standing out and most often in the bible by being seated an emperor stands out by being seated pontius pilate stands out by being seated so we have to underscore this and my orthodox hearers 
should be the last to complain about that because our bishop is seated actually if you don't have a throne in a new church you have to bring a chair on which he has to sit i mean we see this every day and every time but then the bishop that's my proof that bishops are not god let alone gods in that they are always serious when they are seated whereas the scriptural god laughs at all of us while seated as in psalm 2 the sin of the kings on the earth is to be exceptional and to stand out and in psalm 2 god is just standing out against all of the kings above and beyond all of the kings i mean that's what he's doing in ezekiel he's the god above all gods and so forth and so on it's much more exciting than the philosophical discussion you know how in my writings i refer to the temple palace complex now let's recall that in hebrew it's the same exact word that is translated temple and palace one more time we don't have two words it's the same word so what is the difference the difference and this is a reminder by the peoples of those times to the king that he is not really god although you refer to him as sire and god as in psalm 45 but you know there is a difference but where is the difference my students would immediately say let me write you a paper i don't want your paper it's philosophical jargon i want you to hear the biblical story in the hekal as palace the king sits on his throne and the people are standing before him so he is the one who stands out when they go next door to the other hekal the king stands out for the people only because he is standing at their head before the god who is seated who alone is standing out in his building if this is not convincing for my hearers i'm talking about those who are honest hearers then what else can i say so the same king the same person that's why i stress functionality remember in my book i say when i'm celebrating the liturgy on sunday i'm the only one who stands out because the absence of one or 10 or 20 parishioners is not going to affect the service that sunday if something happens to me on the road to the church and there is no time for me to call another priest then there will be no liturgy forget about the english the liturgy did not take place i mean this is silly for an arabic ear what do you mean the liturgy did not take place which liturgy are you talking about the liturgy there is no the liturgy in that building on that sunday there was no liturgy not because you were absent as a parishioner but because i a priest now remember what i say i as a priest because on the following sunday in another church i could be seated the same applies to me and to any other person when i am teaching a class or sitting in another class and with this i would like to go back to the king so there is no the king which means in a very deep sense the king is not always the king 
And this is how the prophets were able to dig against kingship and its rottenness. Can you imagine someone entering in the court of Henry VIII and speaking? He'd chop off his head. Come on now. You can't do that. But the prophets in Scripture are always presented as sent out by the one who is always seated next door in that building in which whenever the king is there, the king is standing until God would tell him, sit at my right hand. So teaching through examples is very important, especially when they come from the Bible. Otherwise, we're not paying respect to the text as it stands. And this is what is done in all the churches, you know, before the reading of Scripture. Be attentive, open your ears. This is the word of God. I mean, for heaven's sake. A bishop in the Middle East told me once, I know, Father Paul, you are a biblical scholar, but according to me, the expression of the Lord, those who have ears not to hear, is not meant symbolically. It is meant literally. In other words, you plug your ears. Notice how the children do when their mother repeats for the third time. You know, they close their ears because they cannot shut up their mother. It's impossible. But there are ways and ways to shut your ears. You don't have to put your fingers in your ears. Thank you very much, Father Paul. It's truly a pleasure. And we got to keep working at this. I know you're retired, and I ask your forgiveness. Richard and I always push you to do this work, but it's important work as you taught us. So thank you, and I look forward to our next episode. Thank you very much, Father Mark. Thank you. Take care. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network. 